Welcome to the Hopeless Wonder Podcast Extra, episode 13 with me, Adam Gipke, Craig Rogers and Andy McBride. And this week we've got more of a continental feel as we say ciao to our guest Tommaso Adami from the Anglo-Italian Podcast. So welcome Tommaso. How has 2021 treated you in Italy? Ciao ragazzi, number one, thank you so much for having me on. It's always a pleasure to see that there is this sort of like mutual you know podcast trying to reach out to other podcasts it's always a nice feeling definitely 2021 has been so far much better than 2020 and for what concerns <laughs> football i have to say that only one loss in the games that we've played two ties and the rest was all wins i'm feeling pretty good considering that two wins came against ac milan and fucking juventus i'm very very happy about that <laughs> Good times. Yeah, and we'll delve into your team into Milan in due course. But yeah, some fascinating news from Serie A, that's for sure. And Andy, how are you doing considering the result from last night, which was against Sheffield United? Yeah, not not too bad. Um, Yeah, it was somewhat disappointing, to put it mildly. Um, I was expecting a nice, quiet evening in front of a laptop. You know, nice, easy three or four nil, but that's probably that that wasn't how it panned out. So yeah, no, it didn't, didn't unfortunately. But we'll go into that in a bit more detail shortly as well. And Craig Rangers continue to dominate. Um, good result for you guys against Hibs. Um, but more importantly, mate, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing really well, mate. The nights are getting slightly lighter. Rangers are still winning. Twenty three points clear, mate. I am. Um, I'm really, really good. Thank you. And what about yourself? Yeah, keeping well. Obviously quite busy at work, still working through this pandemic and uh, yeah, just plowing through it. So um, this podcast gives me a lot of joy in the meantime. So um, it's good to get a good guest on as well. So um, let us start by talking about the big news that happened on Monday night. And I don't mean for the listener, Wickham scoring against Spurs. I of course mean about Chelsea sacking Frank Lampard. So um, let me start by asking you guys, a question which is going to be slightly different to what I think most of our listeners are anticipating. So rather than give me an idea of why you think he got sacked, I'm going to phrase it this way. I mean, do you guys think the expectations of the second season made that sacking decision versus the expectations Lampard was brought into? Because certainly, obviously, when he came into the job, the expectations were probably different to when he bought £225 million worth of like talent into that squad. So um, if I start off by asking you, Craig, your thoughts on this Lampard sacking, I mean, where do you think it all went wrong for Frank? You're 100% right, Adam. Uh, when Frank Lampard came in um, the summer before last, the expectation under the, the transfer embargo was breathe the youth through, start and get youth players into the squad and almost sort of do what you can under the circumstances. You then don't get to spend upwards of £200 million worth of Roman Abramovich's money without the goalpost moved and without the, the season's expectations changing. So when he first came into that job, the season's expectations meeting would have been try and get top four if you can. That meeting this summer would have been much, much different and it would have been, right, you've had your season to bed in, we've spent this money now, we expect a serious title challenge. Now, I'm not saying for a minute we would have expected to win the league this year, but they would have wanted a CDC type of challenge. And I think Abramovich has looked at it and thought, you know, it's only going one way. We're not going to be able to challenge 
Liverpool, City or United at the top um, and they've chosen to make a move now. I don't think it was probably the right time. I think Thomas Tuchel is reportedly not their first choice. Um, I've read this week that they approached Leipzig to talk to Nagelsmann and they said no. Nagelsmann wasn't interested either. Mm. So it doesn't bode well for Tuchel if you're in that job playing for that owner and you're not even the first choice. But I'm sure we'll go on to it in a minute after the other gents share their, their thoughts. He is a decent enough manager and I think he will, he will improve them over and above what Frank Lampard has done. And Tommy, from someone who's outside of the English game, so to speak, um, what's the perception ha- been from Italy? I mean, certainly if I'm thinking about it, I'd kind of go, well, you go into a fortress like Chelsea and you expect if you don't bring success, then you're going to be sacked because that's what Roman Abramovich has done for the last 10 years. So it shouldn't be a surprise to even Chelsea fans. But what's been the thoughts in Italy? And more importantly, what do you think of the current situation? Well, the thoughts in Italy, there aren't many thoughts because Italians think that only Serie A exists. Nothing outside <laughs> of the Serie A is worth talking about. So there hasn't been a lot of talk. I think in the main Italian sports newspaper, there was just a, like a little article about Lampard being sacked. But from somebody who I was born in 1992 and I grew up, you know, in the watching football in the early 2000s for me Frankie Lampard was one of the best midfielders in the world and all I can I mean I remember him slightly at West Ham but then especially at Chelsea and when he was appointed Chelsea manager I really crossed my fingers because if there is one thing that I hate is seeing a club legend burning so quickly and being sacked from the club that they became a symbol of so If I have to be honest, it doesn't come as a surprise because this is what Chelsea, as you were saying, have been doing for the past 20 years. If the results don't come, they just like change manager. Uh, We've seen that with Sarri. We've seen that with Conte. Even if the results come, sometimes it's not Mm -hmm. enough. So this really didn't come as a surprise for me. Um, At the beginning of the season, both uh, my co-host in the podcast, Rory, and I, we're saying that Chelsea had one of the fittest teams in the Premier League, one of the fittest squads. I mean, the names are there, but it takes a good manager to make all those names work well together. And I do think that Lampard didn't do that properly. The sacking doesn't come as a surprise, but as a football fan, I'm kind of sad to see a club legend leave the job so early. Maybe, maybe a little more time would have been good for him to like make the team, the, the wheels start turning. And Andy, what have you made of the Chelsea fans' reaction to this? Because, yeah, I mean, obviously a week ago, a lot of the fans were almost calling for his head after a poor run. And it's fair to say it has been a poor run of like constant kind of battles in terms of the way they've been performing. But certainly, I think to an extent, it's been a bit of a surprise. But yeah, what was your thoughts on that? I think what I've seen is that the Chelsea fan base are somewhat divided. Um, I think some of them feel that the players um, are putting in a response, you know, are putting in a shift. Um, some of them feel that. Um, this is hilarious coming from Chelsea that they that they wanted sort of long term sustainability, and they should have given Frank Lampard a bit more loyalty. 
Um, now, what I do find interesting is when people talk about the mitigating factors um, behind, um, you know, Frank Lampard coming in. So, obviously, the, the original ban that Chelsea had was for two transfer windows, in other words, one year. And uh, that got uh, repealed down to one. So, in the January of that first season, they were able to buy players. And in the summer of their transfer ban, they bought in Christian Pulisic, who was an agreed deal before it came in, for about 60-odd billion quid, and they made the deal for Matteo Kovacic permanent for about the same kind of money. So it's not like they didn't break in players. They did. Um, so, you know, I don't. I think people make that a bit more of a deal than it was. And, yeah, I think Lampard did um, an OK job. You know, he got top four, which is about what you'd expect uh, from that squad that he's got, uh, and he did bring in, he, he did bring through a lot of the youth players like you know Tamori, uh, Reese James, uh, Mason, you know um, his son Mason Mount, um, Tammy Abraham. So <laughs> you know he's done he's done quite well in bringing through you know the younger talent. But you know as Craig and yourself, Adam, have said that when you spend that much of Roman Abramovich's money you expect a return from it. You don't go and buy the best attacking midfielder in Germany. You don't go and buy the best striker in Germany. You know, they're not, they weren't young talents for the future that they splashed out money on. They splashed out on established internationals who'd been putting up serious numbers for a couple of years. Um, you know, it's, it's the same, like, you wanted a new goalkeeper. He got a new goalkeeper. You wanted a new centre-back. I think the only transfer target, which apparently there was a bit of disagreement with, with the board, was Declan Rice, because they saw yeah. it as bad being bad PR um, that to spend um, so much money on bringing somebody to let go for free, because I don't know what kind of club would do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, um, yeah, and there was a bit of that. And I think uh, Matt Law did a really good, though he covers Chelsea a lot uh, from Telegraph, he did a really good article basically saying that a few of the players uh, weren't entirely behind him. Now, this is nothing new mm. when it comes to Chelsea. You know, the player, I think it's somewhat of an irony because um, a lot of people recalled online that um, Frank Lampard was quite fond of sticking the boot in or saying unhelpful things through the media because he wasn't getting on with the manager. Um, he was part of the squad, you know, the likes of John Terry, uh, Didier Drogba, that, you know, if they didn't, if they didn't like the manager, they made their feelings known. Um, you know, and with regards to the Chelsea fans wanting a bit of, you know, suddenly cry for patience, you know, they had absolutely no time for patience when Mauricio Sarri won them a trophy got into the final of another trophy, they couldn't wait to get him out of the building quickly enough. Mm. So with Rafael Benitez, they could not wait to get him. You know, they they really made it clear they did not like him, despite the fact he went and won something. You know, the players couldn't wait to get Beers Barris out the door. Um, the same with Philip de Scolari, if you cover sort of more or less the entirety of Roman Branches' reign. So I think Lampard, you know, it, it was a job too soon for him you can understand why he took the job but i don't think he could be surprised in any way all the fans be surprised in any way shape or form that they've gone down this route because um he's he you know abramovich is not one to let his standards slip mm. uh, and there's not a single other club in the world 
that invested the money that they did in the current climate. So yeah, yeah, I think you know the new manager's got a lot to sort out. Tuchel, there's a lot of um, of the older players. You know, there's a lot. There's quite a very bloated squad for the highly paid players who aren't really playing any football. You know, that seems to be causing problems. Um, you know, there's a whole issue of you know Percy. I think he's been bought in to get the most out of the German lads, and that's Craig yeah. who did so. Um, you know, he's not the first choice. Um, you know, there's also quite a lot of talk that he wanted to bring in Ralph Ragnick uh, yeah. on, the, on the short-term deal. Uh, but I think uh, the smart money is that in about 18 months' time, uh, they'll probably want to see... Probably, I reckon Nagelsmann would be their number one target. And something you picked on from last week's uh, podcast, Craig, was around the fact that you didn't feel Lampard was necessarily building a side because actually some of these signings that were brought in this summer were kind of random to an extent. Um, But then also in my head, I also think that players like Tomori, for example, who's just gone to AC Milan, obviously being given the cold shoulder, You've got the likes of Hudson-Odoi, who wasn't really played regularly as well. Um, and I know something that's quite passionate to Chelsea fans' hearts is around Billy Gilmore and the progress of him. And certainly for a period of time, although he did have some injuries, he wasn't getting even a look in. So do you feel maybe Lampard neglected what he'd actually started to build in that first season? Yeah, I think... He did have a good first season with those players and I think it probably would have been smart business to bring in one or two signings to maybe improve that squad slowly over a period of windows. As an example, perhaps last summer, a few players in, maybe one in January and then maybe this summer, another few in, and gradually grow the team into a title challenger. Like Andy's spoken about, that's not what Chelsea do though. Chelsea have gone for a sort of big bang approach here. Um, and you're right to highlight their transfer policy. It's not like a really, really smart piece of business, um, a la Leicester as an example, a club who go out and scout for a very specific player to perform a very specific role, and those players fit into that system. It was almost like they looked across Europe, looked at what young talent was available, and just thought, we've got the money, let's just go and get them, with no regard for how they will play together under that team. Uh, And I think they've gone too heavy with the transfers, trying to get a team like that, particularly young players coming to a different country. And you can't underestimate the impact of COVID, where these players would usually be able to go to each other's houses for dinner, go and play golf, go for a meal, get to socialise and get to know each other really, really well. But under this climate, they can't. And the only time they see each other is on the training ground and then then travelling to games. So I think any player going abroad um, during this pandemic will find it difficult. And I think Chelsea have found that with a lot of their players who have come in for big money, not hit the ground running. Um, and then it's blatantly obvious. And then people start to look at um, Frank Lampard and he that he is the problem. Um, and we'll see we'll see what Thomas Tuchel can do with this team. He does reportedly have a reasonable relationship with Thiago Silva from PSG. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was his captain over there. Um, and naturally, you look at Havertz and, and Werner and a German-speaking coach and what they could potentially get out of there. Obviously, Rudiger's there, German speaker. Um, Tuchel's English is spotless, uh, if you've heard him speak last night. Apparently speaks obviously very good French, um, with a decent French contingent in that squad as well, with Zuma and Mendy, the keeper. So it's probably a good fit um, for that. But as I'm sure we will talk about, he's got a, a bit of a record for disagreeing with his superiors. Um, and at Chelsea, that looks like an accident waiting to happen. 
And uh, Tommy, from your point of view, um, what do you make of Thomas Tuchel? Do you think he was the right man? Um, uh, there was a lot of rumours around maybe Allegri also being potentially quoted for this job as well, and apparently he turned it down. So um, do you think he was the best man for what they could get right now? Look, I'll start from my from Italy. So Allegri is, in my opinion, a very, very good manager, and he's the type of man who can make the best out of a situation like the one Chelsea are in. But at the mm. same time, Allegri has got a lot of pride. If you don't follow Italian football, well, I'm telling you, he's a very proud person, and I don't think he's the type who would get a job halfway through the season. He wants to start with his own players, build build the personality of the team from scratch. So I don't think he would accept any job like that. There were talks around him for Arsenal as well, but he will only accept a job starting from September or August, in my opinion. Um, mm. Tuchel, I have to admit, I don't have that much knowledge about him. All I know is that you know, he did a fairly good job with Borussia Dortmund. Then he fell he fell through big time with the management. Went to PSG, did all right, but didn't do quite as well as they were hoping. He got sacked. And if I were a Chelsea fan, whenever a manager is sacked halfway through the season, you kind of want, you know, that wind of freshness to come in. And I mm. don't think that Tuchel has that uh, that characteristic about him. I think he's a good manager. I mean, if he's up there, he's got to be a good manager, right? Mm. There is the German connection, as, as you guys were saying. But at the same time, you know, if I were a Chelsea fan, I would be just like, we just sacked a club legend. And now this, this guy, let's call him this guy, comes in. Because he doesn't have that big of a personality either, right? He's just like, I don't know, he just kind of looks funny too. He doesn't seem like the guy who's going to turn things around. And then first game, it's nil-nil against Wolverhampton, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So, of course, first game, he came in like 48, 72 hours ago. Yeah. You cannot do that much, but it doesn't seem to me like the type who's going to turn things around completely. I do think that there is another sacking just around the corner for Chelsea fans. <laughs> Not that long from now. I'm calling it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, time will tell, I'm sure. But um, yeah, we'll see how those things pan out for Chelsea. In the meantime, let's move on to uh, Man United. So Andy, can you explain to the listener what Idea Balls is? And um, <laughs> I don't have a clue when I first saw it. And I don't know if Tomasi or Tomaso is going to actually know either. But yeah, can you just explain to the listener what the hell Idea Balls is? Um, so this came, this originated from after the Liverpool game, of which uh, the FA Cup game, which United won 3-2. Uh, I'll go more into that in a second. So, but after the game, uh, somebody had put on a tweet: um, "No player completed more idea balls, fifteen, than Thiago on the pitch tonight." So, um, so needless to say, a lot of people is um, is what the fuck is an idea ball? Yeah. Um, Thank you for clarifying. And, uh, <laughs> so, and in response to that question, it is. A Nigerian street soccer slang for a flashy-looking pass that ends up not being useful to anybody. 
<laughs> so you know, like uh, when you when your centre back switches it to your full back, it looks really nice. But what if you achieve absolutely nothing? But you get a polite round of applause from the crowd, regardless. Uh, that appears to be what an idea <laughs> ball is, and that appears to be the uh, the straws to which you're clutching to. Um, so is, it like, is it like an XP, an expected pass, or something like that? <laughs> I don't really know. It's just it just seems to have caught online over the past couple of days with like most people going, "What the fuck is an idea ball?" So yeah, I think it's just when someone does like a really unnecessarily flashy pass to which nothing is achieved. Um, so yeah, that I learned some I learned something new in the world of football. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know what they're going to call it. Ig like expected ideas. Um, I mean, if it was expected ideas, Man United went out of them last night. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I guess if we're going to like order, so yeah, the you know I said last week that United Liverpool game in the cup would be a lot more entertaining. Mm. Um, so that proved to be the case. Um, I think one thing that did certainly surprise me was um, Liverpool put out a much stronger lineup than I expected. Um, I mean, they, yeah. you know, they played pretty much all their big names. I think the only non-regulars in there would have been their centre-back Williams and uh, Curtis Jones, who's got quite a few minutes for them already. But other than that, it was a very um, two out of their first choice front three, their first choice midfield, and whatever they could put at centre-back, given in mind injuries. And yeah, it was just a thoroughly entertaining game. I think with the first Liverpool goal, that was just good quality football. Uh, you can't, I can't really say much more than that, to be honest. Like, you could argue maybe someone should have been a little bit tighter on Salah, but the movement was brilliant. Fantastic finish over Henderson. It's like, yeah, cool. You, you can't sort of do much about it. But um, I think what we did see is that because Liverpool are the sort of team that will attack, especially more so in the cup game, um, you played to United's strengths a little bit. I mean, Rashford, you know, he's actually under quite underrated as a playmaker. Um, you know, that ball he put through for Greenwood is probably one of the best assists I've seen this season. Um, and it was great for Greenwood to get that goal because I think he's had a quite a difficult time of it this season, uh, both on the pitch and off the pitch. Uh, some of it off is doing, some of it not so much. But, you know, he is at the end of the day a 19-year-old lad. Um, so, yeah, it was good for him to get that goal. Um, and then... You know, I thought things really go quite smoothly. Where again, another really good goal of the break. Rashford um, goes for two one, and then um, a bit of uh, sloppy, socially distant defending from Manchester United, which isn't new, unfortunately. Um, you know, giving Mohamed Salah time and space inside the penalty area is usually ill-advised. Um, you know, Milner had a bit of a crack at goal, didn't get it in, but. Obviously, Salah don't really miss from sort of 12 yards out. Um, and then, you know, the god Bruno Fernandes came on. And I don't know what it's like, but you know, some, you know, sometimes when you sit there and think he's going to score here, and you just kind of, yeah. you just kind of, you're just utterly convinced that in your head it's going to go in. I felt that with Bruno Fernandes while I just had the feeling he was just going to knock it in, and he did. Um, so, yeah, I think overall it was a very satisfying result. Um, you know, it's one of those, I think, although neither team would have been that disappointed to lose because I guess they're both focused on the league. I think, you know, it is definitely a morale-boosting result. You know, we can be a top side. Uh, we haven't done too much of this season. 
um, and we are starting with a chance of winning something. So, you know, there is that. Uh, so, yeah, I, was, I went into this week full of positivity. You know, my ego mm. has gone up a bit, the top of the table, and I'm feeling good. And then yesterday happens. Um, and it was just one of those, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Um, you know, I felt that Sheffield, you know, United were sloppy. We were struggling to create chances, apart from an early chance of Rashford at the start of the game, where although he's outside the box, um, he had enough space and time to hit the target. Uh, especially because Aaron Ramsdale, to put it bluntly, isn't very good. Um, and then the first goal, um, you know, it was an obvious tactic from Sheffield United. I've seen other teams do it, is to crowd David De Gea in, in basically box him in. Um, yeah. And they scored from that. Um, you know, although one could argue it's poor goalkeeping, you could also argue there was a foul in the build-up, but they gave it. So when uh, Martial scored, um, as a result of Ramsdale fumbling it, um, you know, Maguire was sort of in his way, they disallowed it, uh, which I don't really understand in my mind. They were both pretty much the same thing happening, but with two different outcomes. And the fact you've got VAR there to have a look at it, it's just fucking ridiculous. Uh, I mean, you know, in my mind, you either give them both or disallow both. Um, but I guess a lot of fans would argue that Manchester United have had more in some results in their favour as a result of VAR. So I guess it swings around about, I suppose. But I think that should distract from what a bad performance it was. Uh, I mean, if you've seen the defending for... Um, Sheffield United's second goal, uh, which was yeah. a deflected effort scored by Oliver Burke, who, who a man, I think it said on the commentary last night, who has three goals in about 60-odd appearances in the Premier League or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and none of them were for Sheffield United until that point. Um, it was just like Sunday League. Everyone just stood there like stationary and no one's moving. Like, no one will commit themselves to the ball. Uh, so in the end, he just takes a pot shot takes an unfortunate deflection, hits the bar and goes in. Um, and it was just one of those days where in the final third, we just didn't have, it's a bit of a throwback to last season, where we didn't have the creativity or the or a plan of how to uh, break them down. Because, you know, Chris Wilder organised his side superbly. There was a solid five at the back, another three in front, and we did not move from that position unless it was on the break. So they're really hard to break mm-hmm. down. And I think, uh, you know what, I was going to go on to the pod this week and say that Solskjaer's in-game manager was starting to improve. You know, he made the substitutions reasonably early on against Liverpool and it made a difference. I Me mean, granted, when you've got Bruno Fernandes to bring off the bench, I think anyone's going to make it. I think that's going to make a difference anyway. But I felt that, you know, everybody could see at half-time it wasn't working. Yeah. Um, I think at half-time, Martial should have been hooked off because he's been in a poor run of form for a long time now. Um, and he's not, you know, at the moment, he's not a reliable finisher. He doesn't work hard enough off the ball. And normally you can accept that if you're clinical enough at the other end, but he's not doing that either. Um, I felt Cavani should have been uh, on at half time at the absolute earliest. Um, you know, you've got Van der Beek, another creative player, um, not starting. And, you know, it's just um, bringing on sort of Luke Shaw as well. It's just. The substitutions baffled me a little bit, and I think they were made a little bit too late. Um, so yeah, it was a very disappointing result. Um, I think, I think maybe as much as I hate to say it, there was a bit of complacency 
Um, yeah. I think maybe there was a bit of a, oh, we'll turn up to these, you know, Sheffield United, they've won one game all season. They're absolutely shite. We'll, we'll roll them over. And uh, maybe the players kind of f- felt that um, a, a little bit. So it's a good kick up the arse. Um, it's not, yeah. you know, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a shock. I think what was unacceptable was two of our players being racially abused online. You know, everybody had a bad game, all of them, but with Axel Twanzebe and Marshall, they were subject to some pretty unpleasant abuse, both on Twitter um, and Instagram. You know, to the point where the club and a lot of the players have had to come out and say, you know, this this is not acceptable. Um, and that's a bit I find a bit frustrating is that the, I think maybe because there is a crowd in the ground at the moment, uh, people could be very reactionary online. You know, it's yeah. all it's one thing saying it's a load of shite. I tend to express my disappointment in killing Eve gifts. Um so that doesn't really offend anybody. But uh yeah, I think there's there's a way of approving mm-hmm. expressing your disapproval, but to mm-hmm. start, you know, making those kind of drives at your own players, there's no space for that. And as far as I'm concerned, they can get in the bin. Can I say just one thing? I was recording with Rory for our podcast right before this, and we did address this problem. To anybody listening, there is one thing that you can do, guys, and I did it the other day, and it felt extremely gratifying. Do report these accounts, because you can do that. And Instagram did actually remove all the comments that I that I kind of signaled, and we can play a part in this. We cannot mm. go punch this person in the face, unfortunately. But we can, we can, you know, tell <laughs> yeah. Instagram or Twitter this has no place here. And Instagram and Twitter, they do listen to you. It takes five seconds, report the comments, and then hint, block that page that you reported so that they cannot break your balls. <laughs> Good advice. Um, just quickly, Andy, though, on the Ollie tactics piece, you had a question come in from John. Um, he felt that actually the way that Man United like set up for the Sheffield United game with a kind of weakened side that probably had a role to play in the way that Man United approached that game and they took their foot off the pedal, especially with the momentum going their way. And he also feels that it just goes to highlight that Oli's still lacking that experience when it comes to tactics. So would you share that opinion? I think yes and no to a point. I think the squad that, the, the 11 that was out there last night should have been enough to win the game. You know, a front three of Greenwood, Rashford, Marshall, supported by Bruno Fernandes and starting Paul Pogba, the only really non-regular starter out of that squad was uh, you know, the Matic, but he still plays a lot, and Axel Twanzebe. Uh, we also start Alex Tellez, but he's hardly inexperienced. Yeah. Um, you know, he's a full international. He's playing. He's played Champions League semi for Porto for a few years. So, but yeah, I think uh, maybe we could have lined up with different personnel. You know, when you're going into that game, you know they're going to sit deep. You know they're going to defend for the lies, play five at the back. You know, flat back five with a couple of supporters. You need players that can unlock mm. a defence. So maybe you know. Maybe the likes of uh, we don't even have that much pace, Sheffield United. I think we could have used Van der Beek, um, and it started to look like more and more every day that maybe Solskjaer didn't particularly want yeah. him, uh, which leads to more questions and answers. But Van der Beek, I'm sure, could have taken the place of Nemanja Matic and would have had a bit more invention in the final third. Uh, I think Juan Mata 
could have played a part in that game. You know, take Marshall, um, take Marshall off. You know, even Cavani, like even when he came on, the movement would have been a would have been more of a problem for them. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think maybe we just lined up the wrong players. Uh, we and we didn't have much of a plan to break down that pack defense. I think well, because I think this season we've come back from behind about seven times mm. in the league to win. Um, I think maybe there was a bit of an assumption is that ah, we'll just do it again. Um, and you know, I think when you keep going behind in games, there is going to be a time where you're not able to come back from it. And I think this just proved to be the case. So yeah, I think. Um, Partly different personnel, I think, might have worked. Uh, and I think, you know, we should have probably planned for that. Um, so, yeah, it's, yeah, it's an mm. interesting one. You've got some interesting set of uh, fixtures as well. So you start off on Saturday again against Arsenal. So, um, yeah, one of those sides that traditionally you'd have a battle with, but no one seems to know what Arsenal side turns up these days. So um, what's your thoughts going into that one? But as you said, um, you know, it's one of those like if it, if last night didn't happen, I would have I would have been very very confident United going to Arsenal and mm. doing them in. Uh, but now I'm sort of questioning myself again. You know, they just signed Odegaard, who's a very 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 good player. Um, you know, did um, some brilliant stuff for Real Sociedad last season. Um, to my mind, should be playing a hell of a lot yeah. more for Real Madrid than he was. Uh, so he's one hell of a signing for Arsenal, even if it is on loan. So, yeah, I think we can beat them, but um, you know, Arsenal on their day can hurt teams. So I think it'll be an entertaining game. I don't think it'd be a um, dreadful nil-nil. So, guys, um, while we're still sticking with the Premier League anyway, um, can I just ask both of you guys and even Tommy, where have West Ham come out of like up until tonight's game where we've got Liverpool playing Tottenham and that, as it stands right now, Liverpool are back up into fourth place. But West Ham are currently, as it stands, providing results go, they were fourth in the Premier League. And um, Craig, for a number of weeks, you've been highlighting West Ham, but what a signing is Thomas Suchek. I mean, he looks like a much more able Nemanja Matic, I would say. Um, I've got a few stats as well that I came out with uh, when I was looking this in a bit more detail. So it might surprise you guys, but West Ham have scored more goals from open play versus set play. So they've scored 57% of their goals from open play. And in terms of the pass type, they actually made up 81% of short passing versus 14% of long balls. Um, they've scored 30 goals this season, which when you consider the likes of Everton, they've scored 29, Spurs 33, Chelsea on 32. So they've done really well up top as well. Um, and yeah, potentially going into January, if they obviously beat Liverpool on Sunday, I think it is. Yes, Sunday. Um, they'll go into January on 100% win record. Um, they've so far scored 12 goals in January, only conceding three. So it goes to show you they've done really well at both ends of the pitches as well. But um, Craig, your thoughts on West Ham's season so far? Yeah, the reason I mentioned West Ham all the time is because I thought they would get relegated this year. Yeah. I, I spoke about it in the pod last week and after they got by last season, I thought David Moyes would really, really struggle. And, you know, I, th- I, th- I thought they would, he would be sacked by now and I thought they would be 
in a dogfight. I don't know what he's doing there. Um, I don't watch an awful lot of West Ham if I can help it. To be honest, I don't <laughs> find him particularly exciting. But in terms of overachievement, he's he's probably got to be your manager of the year at the moment. Now, I'm not for one second saying that they can they can keep this momentum up for the, the second half of the season and finish top four. But even even top six, seven, eight for West Ham would be beyond mm-hmm. their wildest dreams. And if they can recruit well, um, which is obviously a big if, but if they can recruit well next summer, then they can potentially start to solidify themselves as as an upper an upper table team. But credit to to David Moyes, he is a reasonable coach. I think we saw that at Everton, mm-hmm. uh, less so at Manchester United. I think. West Ham, Everton is his ceiling yeah. as a club. I think I think that's about as far as he will go. I can't see him back at a big club again. I think he quite he struggled there quite um, quite significantly. But you know, for clubs uh, at West Ham's level, he's a, a perfectly serviceable coach. And uh, even though he is a Celtic fan, I'm, I'm pleased to see him doing well. Mm. And Andy, just for your opinion, do you think the fact that they haven't got a crowd where normally West Ham tend to crumble? like they've had for the last few seasons where the fans have been on their backs. Do you think the fact that they've not had a crowd has actually helped this season? I think it has to a point because, you know, much of West Ham's, the West Ham fans' dissatisfaction comes from the, towards the boards more than anything else. Um, you know, they felt that like they've been scammed, you know, they were told, um, oh, we'll move to this really fantastic 60,000-seat Olympic stadium. We were playing Champions League football. We'll be, you know, this will elevate us to being one of the biggest clubs in the country. Um, you know, obviously over the past sort of few years, that hasn't transpired to mm. be the case. Um, you know, they've invested badly. There's a lot of um, ill feeling towards Golden yeah. Sullivan, um, you know, over their, over their various dealings and how they've run the club. Um, and I think there was also the reaction to David Moyes coming back was very lukewarm because, you know, I think um, West Ham supporters can sometimes be a little bit like Newcastle. I think they they dream big, is the politest way I could put it. Um, you know, they want to play entertaining football. You know, they want to be competing at the higher end of the table and they want managers who will fit in with that. And David Moyes sort of wasn't, you know. Uh, but the thing with David Moyes is that you have to give mm. him time. You know, he's a three, four, five year project man. He'll slowly build a team with the right personalities. You know, he always builds a hard working team that can have moments mm. of quality. That's why the likes of Jared Bowen is playing rather than Yarmolenko. That's why, you know, um, Antonio start, started in place of Hallow, who's obviously now gone to... Ajax, um, you, like it feels like this is a David Moyes team, like David Everton vintage. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I could potentially, if they carry on their sort of current path, they could potentially sneak into the Europa League positions. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, Moyes is fine to get the credit he deserves, and yeah, I think the crowds not being there as inadvertently helped them. All right then. So let's move across to Serie A and we'll bring in our guest now for this part. So, Tommy, your podcast with Rory has been fascinating for me personally. I mean, I love the content you guys do, but I think we'd love to hear a bit more on this show as well because between me and Craig, we try and do our best, but obviously you being the expert, it's, it's a blessing really. So, Let's start by kind of asking you, how has Serie A been for you from that point of view of 
the craziness that have been going on. I mean, we've been covering it for the last few weeks, but it seems to mimic what's going on across Europe, not just in the Premier League and Serie A, but everywhere else. So how has that been taken in Italy right now? So, yeah, as I was saying in our uh, episode last week, I think that one of the few fields to which actually coronavirus has been slightly beneficial, if we can put it that way, and I don't want to overlook all the mm. deaths that there have been and stuff, I think it's the world of football. And we're seeing it in the Premier League. We're seeing it in the Serie A. And I'm sure you guys follow Liga and Bundesliga and La Liga as well. There are unexpected scores, there are unexpected leaders, and I think Serie A, finally, after nine years of Juventus absolutely dominating the game, I'm not going to say that it's not going to end that way this year, <laughs> but at least right now it's feeling like a bit more of a competitive league than it has been in the past few years. So we've, we've got AC Milan top of the league, and uh, I think... and. Uh, well, I'm pretty sure that AC Milan are starting to get found out by other teams. I think that they were, I think that they are still a very, very good team, a very solid team. If we look at where AC Milan were standing just last year or even two years ago, so they're doing much better. They're a much more competitive team. They've got Rafael Leao, which, in my opinion, is a very talented striker partnering with Zlatan Ibrahimovic. They've got Kessi at midfield, very talented central midfielder. They've got Gianluigi Donnarumma that I think AC Milan had the patience to train him and to make him really come up through the ranks. And they are first, but right behind Inter Milan, in my opinion, a much more complete team. And I don't say that because I'm an Inter Milan supporter, but because the the club have spent a ton of money mm. on building up, on creating a competitive team for Antonio Conte. The There is not a feeling of inevitability when Inter Milan play. Uh, usually we, we, they, tend to start the game kind of slowly and then they pick it up as the game goes. I don't have the stat in front of me, but many times this year Inter Milan came up from being one or two goals down. Mm. It feels like they thrive when there is something to fight for. So Inter Milan have a very, very good team, but they need something more if they want to win a trophy this year. And mm. the as an Inter Milan fan, I'm saying that after 10 years, we do need a trophy. We haven't won anything ever since winning the Champions League. So even a Coppa Italia or a Scudetto, the Scudetto would be huge, especially mm. given the competition with our cross-city rivals. That would be huge. I'm mm. starting to get a little bit worried about Juventus. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Juventus, the wheels are starting to turn and uh, they don't look inevitable. Not at all. They've lost mm. against AC Milan, against Inter Milan, I'm sorry. Yeah. In a game that was very one-sided. It was Inter Milan mm. dictating the rhythm, dictating the plays, and Juventus trying to square up against them. So they're not inevitable, but there is this thing that is kind of fun in football, isn't it? That when a team has the habit of winning, it takes them two wins to just pick up their form again. So it's very, it's very tight in Serie A. And right now, Atalanta, they defeated AC Milan 3-0. Mm -hmm. And just when in the pod I said that Atalanta were not going to make it to the European spots this year in Serie A, <laughs> it looks like the wheels are starting to turn for them as well. 
you know, Papu Gomez gone, everybody was like, well, this is the beginning of the end for Atalanta. Well, guess what? They have another super talented player that nobody had ever heard of that they're bringing up (laughs) from Estonia. I'm making this up right now. But, you know, Atalanta is the team that when you, when you when you kind of like think they're out, they bring mm-hmm. up a new name, they bring up Ilicic that is sort of yeah. like a new player for them because he didn't play for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And the game against AC Milan, I I was yeah. with some friends who support AC Milan. I was watching the Inter game at the same time, but at a point I just got distracted by Ilicic because, <laughs> I mean, this guy last year, if Atalanta had yeah. gone through in the Champions League, this guy would have been in Ballon d'Or talks big time because the way he plays, he 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 effortlessly plays football and does incredible things. Mm. Atalanta are coming back. They are coming back. If you guys don't follow that much Serie A, it's a lot of fun this year. Finally, yeah. it's, it's a lot of fun. So do 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 watch a little bit if you can. No, definitely. And I'd definitely say Ilicic against Valencia. If anyone wants to see that match in the Champions League, that was like, that just showed you what Ilicic is all about. But one question I had before I bring in some listener questions for you, Tommy. Um, Conte at the beginning and sort of towards the end of last season, there was a bit of like feeling that they might part away between Conte and the club. And even at the beginning of this season, obviously, didn't have a great Champions League campaign. And now he's suddenly starting again to build up this momentum. And he kind of did this very similarly at Chelsea when he first started off at uh, Chelsea. Didn't start off very well after, I think it was for 11 games. And then went unbeaten, for example. So, you know, that game against Juventus was like amazing how strong, you know, the Inter team were. And against even AC Milan, you just... Even though it was 1-1 up until the 90th minute, I had that feeling that Inter were going to pull out a result. Like you've just said, you know, you can come back from two goals down. So what 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 is the feeling of Conte with Inter right now? Is there a bit more optimistic feeling about Conte and what he's doing? Or is that still kind of wavering in the background to kind of say, if he was to go on a bad run, then, you know, maybe a sacking would happen? So, great question. I mean, the I'll start from this. The Inter fan base, <clears throat> it's an extremely emotional fan base. Mm. That's why we fell in love with Mourinho. That's the type of manager that Inter Milan fans want to see. Somebody who is ready literally to die for the colors <laughs> of the kit. So, that's why Mourinho became an immortal symbol for Inter Milan fans. With Conte, you know, Conte was the Juventus captain. He was like the black and white symbol for a very long time. Mm. He accomplished huge things at Juventus. And uh, then he went to Chelsea. Then he coached Italy. And now he's at Inter. I feel like the love between Inter and Conte is never, ever going to fully blossom. He could even win the title. And we would all be extremely thankful to him for that. But he would never be like one of those managers that Inter fans would say, oh my God, do you remember the Conte days? (laughs) But I have to say, and every Inter fan will agree with me, is that Conte is one of the best managers out there. And so every time I think of our squad and I think that Conte is at the helm 
I feel confident that this guy can pull out the results, especially in the league. We all know that Conte is not much of a, yeah, don't make fun of what Inter did in the Champions League campaign this year, mm. but he's not much of a Champions League coach. He's much more of a guy who studies the league and is like, this game is a must win. This game we can tie. This game we can lose. It doesn't matter. But this is a must win. This is a must win and so on. I think he has a clear plan. And as you were saying, there are like these peaks of excitement with him and then it kind of goes down. Then peak yeah. of excitement. And right now there is the big the big peak right now is Christian Eriksen scoring a beautiful free kick. And we're like, okay, do we have the player that can make us win the title? And he's been there all along. Mm. But then you think, why wasn't he playing? Because he probably had a massive argument with Conte because that's the only thing that I can actually picture. Don't talk to me about like tactics or stuff. <laughs> I think that that there was a, a dogfight in the locker room between Ericsson and Conte at some point. But look, I I I just want to win a title, man. <laughs> at the end of the <laughs> yeah. day, I just hope that Inter Milan are going to win are going to win a title at the end of the season. I think we have the means, we have the players right now. There is this rumor, uh, as in as of today, of a possible swap with Roma. Sanchez for Zeko, I would yeah. be all about that. But at the same time, can Zeko play? Can Zeko sit on the bench for too long? I don't know mm. because we've got Lukaku, Lautaro Martinez. So we shall see. I'm confident. I do think that we have the means to win the league. The league. I don't mm. think AC Milan are favorites anymore. I think it's no. going to be between Inter Milan and Juventus. Interesting. Um, so let's bring in some listener questions, but I know also Craig's dying to ask you a few questions, being that he's a Roma fan as well. So um, yeah. have you been surprised by the performances of clubs like Sassuolo and Benevento more recently? Because Benevento, for example, came up last season. They bought a few players, granted, um, but they're a better side than they were two seasons back when they were in Serie A and they were struggling for like getting a result. So um, have you been surprised in particular to Swallow? We've been covering recently where they've been there or thereabouts, but in recent games, I think they've just fallen past. And I don't know whether that's just the fact that they haven't got the squad to compete. But yeah, have you been surprised by how they've been performing? Look, um, surprised by Benevento, big time. By Sassuolo, not that much because Sassuolo have been playing very nice football for the past two years at least. Mm. I'll start from Benevento, however. We're talking about Frank Lampard. Frankie, if you're listening to the pod right now, look at Inzaghi. Look at what happened to him. He got sacked by AC Milan, the club, his big club. I mean, he played for Mm -hmm. Juventus too, but he accomplished much more at AC Milan. He got sacked. He didn't despair. He went to the lower team, to the lower league teams. He coached Venezia, and now he's back in Serie A with Benevento, and I think he's doing a hell of a job. Now, I'm um, I, I I haven't watched many Benevento games, but just looking at the at the Serie A table, they are eleventh. They are eight points from the from the drop drop off zone from the relegation zone. Yeah. So an incredible season, and I think a lot of the credit goes. To Inzaghi. Inzaghi had the patience to not despair and understand that maybe it was a blessing in disguise, the fact that he got sacked by AC Milan. Because, you know, with Lampard, I, I, we were talking today on the pod with Rory about Gerard. He kind of got mm. it the right way, right? Yeah. He started from a smaller team, and we all know that his goal one day is going to be to coach Liverpool. 
but you have much less pressure. While Frankie, he did an all right job at Derby County. And maybe his intention was to keep coaching like smaller teams. But then when an offer from Chelsea comes, how can you turn it down? I mean, you're one of the club legends and turning that down would be kind of a headline. So I think that Inzaghi is a good example of a coach who failed in his first spell at a big club, but he had the patience to start back from lower teams and going up. So I think mm. Benevento are doing a hell of a job. And Sassuolo, Sassuolo are the new Atalanta. I mean, Atalanta right now are an established thing, right? And the Sassuolo are the new Atalanta. I think that they are one of the few teams, number one, I think they got promoted five years ago or six years mm. ago. And they never got relegated. That doesn't happen that often in Serie A. Mm. In, Serie, in Italy, usually it's the teams that come up from the Serie B the next year. Yeah. At least two out of the three, they drop back. That hasn't happened with Sassuolo. And I think they, that the Zerbi, their coach, is doing an incredible, incredible job. We did interview a professional manager yesterday. And he said that the Zerbi, in his opinion, he's one of the best coaches in Europe. What he's doing with the Sassuolo when you watch them play, very fl- free-flowing football, uh, very unselfish football. The players look for each other. They they trust each other a lot, and the, their system just works very well. It's Whenever a team plays Sassuolo, Juventus, AC Milan, or Inter, it's not anymore a game like, oh, we're playing Crotone. It's like, ah, oh, mm. we're playing Sassuolo. This is going to be a tricky one. So all praise to the Zerbi and these this team that wasn't really a thing until seven years ago, and now they're they're up mm. there. They're ninth in the league. Got a question from Sid. He asks you, on this theme of management stars, what would you prefer, Allegri or Gasparini? For Inter Milan? For anyone. I think he's just generally saying, what style of football do you prefer? <laughs> look, Allegri, look, Allegri makes me smile, and not because his last name's his last name means happy in Italian. Uh, <laughs> but because Allegri, he's kind of like the anti-football manager. Like, he's not the guy that is going to make your team play in a beautiful way. Mm. But he's going to get the results. Allegri yeah. is very good at that. So if Allegri comes to your team, don't expect exciting, free-flowing, <laughs> tiki-taka football. But expect win, 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 draw, mm. win, win, win. And I remember the way that Allegri, after Juventus drew a game, I don't remember against whom, the <laughs> way he was speaking, it's as if it was the biggest failure of his lifetime. So Allegri is very good at capitalizing situations. Gasperini, as an Inter fan, I can't fucking stand him because <laughs> he came to Inter Milan, he made a big fuss about the situation and everything. Oh, they didn't bring the players that I wanted. And then ever since Inter Milan sacked him, at any given opportunity to talk about Inter Milan, it just dumps a bunch of shit on our on our crap. <laughs> and I don't like it. But let's say that he is a very, very good manager. And I think that he thrives in the small to medium team environment. He did mm. incredible at Genoa. He's doing very well at Atalanta. I mean, he's the man behind the leap at Atalanta. Like, from a mid-chart team to a top-chart team, you know? Yeah. He is responsible for that. He established a beautiful system. I mean, a center-back, Romero, for Atalanta. When you watch 
Atalanta against AC Milan. The guy scores a goal and he assists another one. Then you watch the game that they played in Coppa Italia yesterday against Lazio. The guy assists another goal in the opposition's box. I mean, that's the manager telling him. That's the manager telling him. That's Gasperini telling yeah. him. You've got the quality to go up front. And he's like, I'm a centre-back. But then Gasperini is also able to say, don't worry about it. Somebody else has got your position covered. Now, I'm too young to have watched the, the Netherlands total football, correct? Mm, but yeah. I think that Atalanta resembled to that type of football a lot because mm. at, at a point, you're not paying attention and their centre-back is about to yeah. shoot on target. And it means that somebody else is covering for him. So it's very, very good football. So if I had to pick one between um, Gasperini, we said, and who was the Gasperini other one? Gasperini and Allegri. And Allegri. I mean, for excitement, Gasperini. For results, mm-hmm. Allegri. If we're talking about Inter next year, Allegri all day long. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. Um, I'm going to merge these two questions into one because I'm conscious Craig wants to get some questions in. So... First one was, how good is Lotoro Martinez? And the second one was, what was Real Madrid smoking when they let you buy Hakimi? What were Real Madrid? I mean, probably the best stuff. Guys, get in touch with me. I'm interested. But um, uh, No, the thing is that they, they didn't only get rid of Hakimi. They got rid of Theo Hernandez as well at the same time. Mm. I mean, left back and right back that you could potentially build your team around, they got rid of them in the same year. I mean, uh, let's talk about short-sighted business. That's Real Madrid. That's Barcelona, in my opinion. They, <laughs> my mate Rory in the pod always talks that they like the flavor of the month and they go for it. They don't have mar- much like far-sightedness. And I think that, yeah, that was a very dumb move. I mean, Hakimi, mm. Hakimi is just like a player that he came on against AC Milan. And the moment he came on, you just can tell it from his face. Like, this guy is going to perform. Plenty of confidence, plenty of technical skills. He's an incredible player. And um, yeah, I think, I don't know what they were smoking, but probably the best stuff. (laughs) 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 What was the other question? Sorry, I got carried away. Um, How good is Lautaro Martinez? Lautaro Martinez, when it comes to the first touch, I think he's up there in the top three players, top three forwards in Europe. His first touch is unbelievable. But then we kind of saw against AC Milan, um, there was a there was a, a goal scoring opportunity that somebody like Diego Milito would have never missed. Lukaku's first touch was a little too short, and then the defenders were kind of catching up with him. He was rushed to shoot, and he he just shot it at the goalkeeper. I think that Lautaro has got incredible potential. He's an incredible talent. I'm delighted to see that Conte finally is finally using him because under Spalletti mm-hmm. he didn't get a lot of playing time. I think that the partnership with Lukaku is just amazing. Last year it was working much better than this one, but because it was something new. Right now teams know what's happening between them two. Lukaku kind of drops back. He's sort of like the pivot. And then Lautaro Martinez keeps running around him. Right now, where I mean, other teams, they're starting to find that out. It doesn't work as much as it did last year. I do think that Lautaro Martinez has got the potential, but he misses a lot at the same Mm. time. He's still very young. I would hate for Lautaro Martinez to join another club at this specific moment. Hopefully, Inter Milan managed to keep him where he is now and they can make him improve too. 
the potential is there. It just needs a wee bit more confidence and it can become the next Luis Suarez, I'm calling it. This guy is something wow. new. So, Craig, pass over to you, mate. Well, I had I had two questions, and one of them, funnily enough, was how good good is Hakimi. I watch quite a lot of Bundesliga football, and I thought at Dortmund he was phenomenal, and I was almost expecting him to go back to Madrid, cement that place, and be their their right fullback for the next seven or eight years. Uh, and I couldn't believe when when Inter Milan snapped him up for I believe it was around forty million euros. Um, yeah, I, I, I just could not believe that and I think Hakimi's now like the listener said there uh, is showing what a, a good piece of business that was for Inter and such a bad piece of business that was for, for Madrid my other question was around another one of your players um, who I've been really really impressed with and I watched the Derby d'Italia and, and I can't help but really really enjoy um, Alejandro Bastoni oh man I, what I thought you would yeah I, I think we talk about central defenders on the pod quite a lot and how good central defenders are such a premium. They cost a lot of money and to have a left-sided central defender who can play either as one of the two or at the left side of a back three is just so valuable. So my question for you was, what is the opinion of the Inter Milan fan base around this boy? Um, how good is he now and how good could he be over the next 10 years? I mean, man, like I was, I, I thought that you were going to mention Barella, but then you said Bastoni and that was a beautiful surprise because Bastoni is a very overlooked player, in my opinion. I mean, he's not overlooked because people here in Italy are talking about him quite a bit, but I don't think he's getting the attention that he deserves abroad. Let's start from the fact that, in my opinion, centre-backs they are always a very rare gem. A good centre-back is something rare yep. to find. And to find a guy this young who has already digested how to play with a four-man defence, how to play with a three-man defence, and he plays alongside De Vrij, which in my opinion is yeah. one of the best centre-backs in the world. I mean, this guy, he came through from Atalanta. Inter Milan got him. We loaned him to Parma for one season. He did it brilliantly. And then... You see why Conte is a good coach, because Conte, he had Godin and Bastoni, and he said, eh, no, Godin is done. Yeah. We, we need to invest on Bastoni. And man, this guy, can he's got that Bonucci touch from the defense that he can set up a play from far away. I mean, we saw it against Juventus, that pass for Barella. Yeah. He slipped, and he actually admitted it. He's also a funny guy. He was just like... Maybe if I hadn't slipped, the pass wouldn't have been as precise. But I love that, man. <laughs> I love that this guy can also, like, giggle about himself. So, yeah, I think that I, I think that he's not only going to become a fundamental piece for... A fundamental pawn for Inder's defense, but also for the Italian national team in the upcoming years. Because he's had, if I'm not mistaken, only five caps for Italy. And Roberto Mancini, our manager, was all over yeah. him. He said, I mean, if this guy keeps his head on his shoulder, doesn't get too cocky, he and he keeps learning because he's very willing to learn, this guy is going to become the next big thing in Italian defensive football. Yeah, very very good shout, mate. Yeah, I really like him. I've, I've, I've watched a lot of central defenders and he, he almost reminds me a bit of Alessandro Nesta. That sort of physique, big, mm -hmm. strong, very, very quick, comfortable with the ball at his feet. I just think... You know, hopefully, you know, he can win enough titles at Inter to keep him there. But if not, you can quite easily see him going and playing for a Real Madrid or a Barcelona or being one of those 
those um those big big other clubs in either Spain or Italy or or in England because he he really could be that good and you know you've got a real gem there so yeah I'm looking forward to seeing how his career, his career progresses. But but you know what's the thing? I think that and right now I don't want to take a, a jab at, at, at other leagues, but I think that Serie A is one of the few leagues in Europe that really that really cares about a good centre back. I mean, just let's go back to England. The Otamendi business from Manchester City, absolute nonsense. <laughs> the amount of money that they paid for an average player is ridiculous to me. Where right now they've got Ruben Neves, finally a good piece of business, right? But centre-backs in Italy, well, you know, we, we like defensive football, we like our Catenaccio and all that, but I don't think that Inter Milan are going to let go of a good central defender right now. And again, De Vrij, Skriniar, Bastoni as a three-man defense. Oh, man, yeah. It's always a pleasure. It's always eye candy whenever I read that <laughs> in the lineup. Oh, that's it. It's a, there's fantastic centre-backs, 100%. Like, I haven't watched much of Serie A, but it's, you, you can understand why you know, a lot of, uh, especially the Italian centre-backs, play for so, so long. Like, oh, if, yeah. you look at the, if you look at the likes of, if you, likes of Benucci... Uh, Chiellini, the fact, you know, they've been playing regular first-team football since the age of, like, 17, 18 years old and have been at the top of their game for so many years shows you how hard it is to find top-class centre-backs, uh, of which there are a lot of in Italy. And I think you're lucky at Inter that you've got, you know, two or three very, very, very good um, centre-backs which a lot of teams don't have. I think, you know, if you look at, like Manchester United, we paid eighty million pounds for Harry Maguire. He's a good player, but on what planet is he worth eighty million pounds? He isn't. And then you look at the likes of what they put. You know, if you look at the likes of Bastoni, Skriniar, Defray, like either one of them would have been cheaper. In fact, you know they could have even got um, Mat- Matthias Delic from um, Ajax for less than they paid for Harry Maguire. So. Yeah, I think it does show you that with good coaching and good scouting, there are it is possible to find good centre backs. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't. I'm not that afraid of Real Madrid or Barcelona coming knocking at our door for Alessandro Bastoni because I think that also for merchandising purposes and stuff, they would always be more interested in building the team around the stellar forward. So. As long as Haaland is around, they're going to focus on players like that, right? And that, key, that, that key for Haaland is going to be long. Yeah, yeah man. I, I, I just mean, like, I don't think that that many teams are that far-sighted to come knocking at our door for a good center it's almost because It's almost like... A, he doesn't sell shirts at the end of the day. So, so I was almost going to sorry for cutting across. I was going to say it's almost a too much of a sensible signing. For Real Madrid or Barcelona, you would if they did that, you'd be shocked mm. because it makes too much sense for them. Yeah, absolutely. You're you're right. You got it, Craig. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> it would make too much sense. Yeah, they they would rather b- build like the team around the flavor of the month up front rather than actually. I mean, Umtiti at Barcelona, they tried to hype him, but right now th- people are starting to, to find him out as well. Like he's a, he's an alright center back. He's not world class. No. And that's one thing I will always be grateful for Italian football. We build teams around the defense. Goalkeeper, good centre-back, then comes all the rest. In many other leagues, it's a good striker, a very good playmaker, and you build the team around that. 
and then you find yourself with Karius in a Champions League final, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, very true, very true. Um, if we just do a quick roundup of Serie A then. Um, so f- last weekend, as you touched on, AC Milan lost to Atalanta 3-0. Uh, goals from Romero, Ilicic and Zabata. And even though Mario Mandzukic came off the bench to uh, make his first appearance, obviously didn't have enough to really influence that game, really. Um, Craig, Roma, obviously you beat Spezia. 4-3 as well, um, to avenge that Coppa Italia defeat as well. Um, what was your thoughts on that game in particular? <sighs> yes, Roma beat Spezia 4-3, but it took a last-minute winner to win that game, and it shouldn't take Roma... It shouldn't be that difficult for Roma to beat teams like Spezia. Um, you know, Spezia, a team that have only won four games of the season, and they come to Rome and they make it that difficult, and it'd be interesting to get um, Tommaso's thoughts on Roma and where they go maybe in a different pod I don't think we've got time tonight but it feels like that early season form um, that we had at Roma and there was a lot of good positivity it feels like that's starting to to turn now we've only won one of the last three games and it looks as if with Juventus uh, one point behind with a game in hand we've also got Napoli and Atalanta in fifth and sixth that top four goal for Roma Looks like it's just starting to slip away, and it might be another another fifth place finish this year. So good that we got the win, but definitely not the performance. Um, particularly mm. after the Lazio game, the Spezia um, exit from the Coppa Italia, I was expecting a, a much more clinical and a much more controlled victory than a four three over Spezia. Uh, Inter Milan obviously failed to take advantage of AC's loss uh, by drawing nil nil with Udinese. Um, Tommy, are you getting frustrated when you have? Like results like this, or is it just the norm with Conte? No, it's the norm with Inter, not with Conte. <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys are old enough to know that Inter have bottled it so many times. <laughs> so I actually was going to my friend's house, and I, uh, he came over to mine, and then I drove him back to his place. And he's an AC Milan fan, and he said, so what are the results today? And I said, if AC Milan win, Inter are going to win. But if AC Milan failed to win, we are never going to win. And that happened. Mm. AC Milan lost and we tied. Still, we managed to snatch one point from them. But that has happened often, too often in our history to not take advantage of another team, of our competitors' result. The game against Udinese, it was a closely contested game, but I have to say that we did not uh, create that many goal-scoring opportunities. I don't know if you guys saw it. Did you see? Did you see that save by Juan Musso on uh, Lautaro Martinez? No. Yes. The guy yeah. was. Oh man! And I mean, Musso has been has been highly credited as Inter's next goalkeeper. And after that save, I was fully sold. He basically dived before Lautaro Martinez shot, guessing the the angle, and it was beautiful. But um, for what concerns, yeah, for what concerns Inter, it's just disappointing to see that this mm. was the second time this year that we had yeah. the opportunity, and we blew it. Let's keep going. We cannot. We should not cry over spilled milk. But um, uh, Roma, Craig, Roma. I mean, you know that I'm more of a Lazio guy yeah. when it comes to <laughs> the teams from the capital. But if I was a Roma fan, I would be constantly even more frustrated than being an Inter fan because it feels like. 
you could be up there, but there is something, something very little missing. And I mean, Roma have got very good players. I mean, Pellegrini, Pellegrini, the guy who won the game against the Spezia. I mean, put him and Barella and Verratti together at midfield this summer for the yeah. Euro 2021 Championship. I think we've got one of the best midfields in the competition. What I think Roma are lacking is confidence. They just lack confidence because I do like Fonseca as a manager. He does play very offensive football, and that means that sometimes the team is going to be found out on the counterattack. We kind of saw that against Spezia too, which was bad. But um, I think that the win, the 4-3 win versus Spezia, besides rescuing Fonseca from being fired, it also showed that the players, they really cared about making it a win and they fought until the very last second. So that's the positive side about it. The negative side is that Roma is a very tough place where to get results in a row. Like, I don't even, I, I wouldn't know, but we should check when was the last time that Roma had like four or five wins in a row. It's been a lifetime. <laughs> and uh, it's always a tough job for any manager there were there was speculation about Allegri possibly yeah. replacing Fonseca, and I do think that Allegri would be a huge name for Roma. He could he could do really really well there. Um, right now, it looks like the things have settled a little bit, and Fonseca is going to stay until the, the end of the season. We shall see. I think that right now, though, the it's getting very tough up there. I mean, Atalanta and Juventus are starting to get results. Napoli, not so much, but Already those two names are enough to make Roma scared. I think that Roma can aim at a top four finish only if AC Milan are not in the top four. That that's my call. But once again, I mean I'm just a I'm just a fan, I'm not a football <laughs> actor. And I'm terrible at betting. That's why I don't bet anymore. <laughs> never never won a single one. <laughs> In the meantime, Juventus won 2-0 against Bologna. Um, just curious if you could give us a quick soundbite, Tommy. Um, Pirlo, do you rate him or not? No, not at all. <laughs> I, <laughs> Fair I enough. Do, well, I rate him as a player. He's yeah. in my top 11 of all time, for sure. Um, kind of a tricky job at this specific moment in history. I think that Juventus do need some rebuilding and... Mm. Pirlo was appointed for financial reasons because Sarri is still being paid and they needed to they needed a low salary. They couldn't afford yeah. anything more than Pirlo. And also, I think, besides the financial reason, I think that there is also a bit of a scapegoat narrative in case things don't go that well. Well, yeah. it was Andrea Pirlo's first ever season as a professional manager. So what did you expect? Juventus mm. are very good at... Plus, I think... I think with Juventus, they've got a lot of very, very highly paid players that probably uh, which could probably hamstring them a little bit. Like you think Aaron Ramsey's on like reportedly on three hundred grand a week, and he's not ha- he's not been a consistent starter for Juventus both under Sarri and Pirlo. You've got Ronaldo, who's on an astronomical amount of money. Who, granted, is still one of the best in the world for me. Um, and then you've also got uh, Rabiot who's on like 250 large by all accounts he doesn't necessarily start all of the games so yeah I think um, I have a feeling that Juventus could end up in a Barcelona type situation 
in two or three years down the line if they're not careful. Ah, man, I've uh, that that rarely happens with Juventus. I wish <laughs> so bad that that happened, but I don't know. Like, I think that in the end, like even this this year, that is a rebuilding year because you know they've 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 got to change some things and bring up the youth as well. That kind of has been working too because right now we see that McKinney from Schalke, he's a very consistent performer. Then we're seeing this guy that in Italian has a very funny name, Frabotta. It sounds like a a name a made-up name for a child's book. But this guy is coming up too. Like he and in yeah. the end it, it feels like their strategy, like it happens very often in Juventus's history, is actually working. Let's get a semi-unexperienced, well, an unexperienced manager on the bench to go through this season. But at the same time, we got to finish top four, possibly second, or even better first. I think they're going to accomplish that. Uh, unfortunately, they are. I hate you. In case you cannot tell. They've meant a lot of heartache for me over the years. Yeah, I can imagine. But do you feel almost with like a bit like Lampard's that actually Juventus have got a squad of individuals rather than an actual team? Because I think it was highlighted with the intermatch in particular how they just lack that spark. And I know they had a lot of injuries, but it did feel like, you know, compared to an Allegri Juventus where they're workmen like they're set out to do a specific job. None of those plays seem like they're specific and it feels like you got Ronaldo as the main star up top and just feed to him. Yeah, I mean, the the Inter loss was the only loss. I mean, the one against Fiorentina was pretty bad too. They lost the 3-0 mm. against Fiorentina, but for the rest, it was win, 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 win. So they always figure it out at the end of the day. They do not look inevitable anymore. It's not the Juventus that you're playing and you say, well, this is going to be a draw if we're lucky. They're not inevitable anymore. But at the same time, if you looked at the games at the beginning of the season when they were drawing game after game after game, they have improved. And sometimes that old identity of not really being a team like it was at the beginning of the season comes out. It did come out against Fiorentina. It did come out against Inter. They are, they, they are going once again through a rebuilding process. And I don't think that it's that easy to be consistent when this is happening. But um, uh, they've got some key players. They've got Cristiano Ronaldo. They've got Chesney. They've got one of the best defenses mm. still in Europe. So I I do think that even when they're not fully performing, they can they they can achieve results. Then there was a slip against Inter. I hope there will be another one next week in the Coppa Italia. <laughs> there was a, a big slip against Fiorentina, but. Juventus, man, they've got an established system. They know what they're doing. Sometimes you want to think that they have no idea what they are doing, but it's just like the little devil on your shoulder crossing its fingers that they're going to get relegated <laughs> again. <laughs> so Lazio also beats the Swallow 2-1. So that leaves Serie A as it stands. AC Milan top, but just by two points. And behind them is Inter Milan. Followed by Roma, uh, that win obviously gives Fonseca a bit more breathing space, uh, especially with the speculation around his position. And then you've got Juventus in third, and or breaking into it, should we say? Um, is they've Juventus got a game in, in hand. Too, yeah. They've got a game in hand against Napoli, haven't they? They've got to play as well. So, yeah. um, and then you've got Atalanta in fifth and Napoli in sixth. So that kind of summarizes Serie A and the crazy year we've had there as well. Um, 
Craig, if we just quickly move into League One, because I know you were quite keen to introduce us to a little bit of stories, especially in particular for Marseille. So um, Villas Boas um, has had not a great sort of month, really. Um, defeats against Monaco, 3-1 was the last one, uh, where obviously there was a lot of tension between Tuvan and Payet as well. Um, but yeah, if I pass over to you. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on on Ligue 1, we've not visited France for a few weeks now, and you're right, the, the top three, the big three, um, Leo Leon and PSG, all won at the weekend. Um, but I just wanted to touch on Marseille, and they're without a win in their last five. They've lost the last four, and two of those were home defeats to Lens and Nîmes. Uh, if you're a fan of French football, mm-hmm. you'll know that Nîmes are at the arse end of Ligue 1. Absolutely dreadful. Um, and they went to Marseille and, and got a win. They're now sat down, sat in sixth. They're now, you know, thirteen points off of PSG. And Marseille, realistically, before the season started, um, probably would not have fancied themselves as challengers for the title. But they are absolutely, you know, have to be in the top three to qualify for the Champions League. And they're eleven points off of that target already. They do have a game in hand, but their recent form doesn't suggest that that will be a successful game. And, you're right, Florian Tuvan and Dimitri Payet are having shots at each other in the press. Dimitri Payet, if you've seen him recently, is really overweight and not performing at the weekend. Oh, he's a bit tubby. At the weekend against Monaco, I think the stats were he only performed five sprints um, during his time on the field. So um, they are really, really struggling. Andre Villas-Boas, after the Monaco game, in the press was saying, well, if they don't want me here, I'll go. And when you start hearing a manager publicly talking like that, then it's, it's, it seals the end. Now, they do have quite a difficult game uh, this weekend. They host Rennes. Rennes are one place above them in the title. Um, they're sat in fifth place, so no mugs. And I were quite good at predicting manager sackings on the pod. And I think if Marseille get beat at home to Rennes, five defeats in a row, that does include, however, um, a defeat to PSG in the Trophy de Champions. So it's not all doom and gloom. But I think a defeat at home to Rennes, uh, on Saturday afternoon, would spend the end. We'll spell the end for him. So, not a good week for Chelsea managers past and present. Mm, and uh, Pochettino continues to do good things at PSG. Their latest win came over Montpellier, so that's kind of cements their position right now, where they're on level points with Lille. However, obviously, I can see them pulling away eventually. Um, if I quickly just move into Scotland, Craig, uh, one of your questions was. Is Neil Lennon using news conferences to get the sack? Um, I think it's more something that I shared in our group around uh, <laughs> his latest <laughs> kind of use of the press conference to uh, kind of, I don't know, what I can't describe it anymore, but he seems to be doing everything he can to just get a payoff off Celtic. Um, Craig, fill us in on that. Yeah, he was, he was asked in a press conference by a Celtic podcast, of which the name escapes me, and that was a really level-headed, sensible question of, can you understand why the fans want changes at the club or big changes at the club after this season? It's you know, their words, not mine. It's the most important season in their history, going for the 10 in a row. Um, and a really eloquent question put to Neil Lennon and just one word answer, just no. And uh, the room was stunned in silence. And then he's come out and said, you know, you can't take away what they've done in the last um, nine years, etc., etc. But to be so disconnected from your fan base and to you know, really 
be so dismissive of a, a sensible question it was quite telling. I think his, his actions are twofold. I, th- I think he is looking for a way out. I think he doesn't obviously want to resign because he'll lose um, his compensation for his dismissal. So I think he is looking for that. But also, one thing that Neil Lennon does well, and there's not a lot, but one thing he does do well is create a siege mentality around the team. So when he comes out and has a pop at Rangers, um, referees, the SFA, the Scottish Government, the First Minister of Scotland, when he comes out and fires these shots, it's to rail the Celtic fans up in their hardcore base and the team to create this everyone's against us mentality. And I think what he's hoping for is a reaction out of that that might potentially turn mm. their form around. However, if you look at the league table, it's it's far little too late. The Rings are now 23 points clear. We've played 26 games, so only 12 games to go. We have to lose five of our last 12 games for Celtic to win the league. Uh, and we haven't been beaten all season in the SPFL. So we've played 26, won 23, drawn three and lost no games. And in those 26 games, Adam, we've had 20 clean sheets and only conceded seven goals. So Rangers are not going to lose five games. It's just not going to happen. So the league's finished. I think Leland mm-hmm. Lennon will either have to walk or be dismissed in the summer because there is no way that this disconnect between the fans and the management at Celtic can roll into season 21-22. There's just no way. They had need a clean cut. They need a new manager. You know, the Celtic fans would like a change of ownership at the club uh, with Peter Lobo exiting as well. And there has to be changes mm. because if you look at the momentum now, if the same Rangers management team and squad and the same Celtic management team and squad go into the next season, uh, all the momentum is with Rangers and you can only see that league going one way. So if Celtic do want to win the league 2021-2022, there has to be massive changes and it has to start with new Lennon. I think, yeah, I think it would probably be in their interest for the board and manager to get that sorted out before the crowds come back. Because um, yeah. I think the only, I think yeah. it's all quite pathetical at the end of the day, but I firmly believe that had the crowds, had uh, Parkhead been at full capacity, making their displeasure known uh, quite vociferously, he would have gone weeks ago. Um, and I think that's probably a big factor as to why they, why the board, for whatever given reason, feel that they can hold on and pretend that everything's all fine, when it clearly isn't. Because um, they probably don't look on Twitter and stuff like that. They just have their re- weekly bullshit column, which we... Uh, Pass to each other on the WhatsApp group and have a good laugh. <laughs> um, just quick word, Craig. Obviously, emphatic win against Ross County, five 0 win, and then you followed it up with a one 0 win against Hibs, thanks to your El Buffalo Morales. Yep. Um, but more importantly, I just thought get a quick word on your left back Perisic. Obviously, much under the radar, but thirteen assists already this season. I know a lot of it's been kind of around Tavernier and how great a season he's having, but. Equally, Perisic is having a great season as well, right? Yeah, he's superb. And you're right to highlight James Tavernier, our captain and right-back. Um, he's having a formal season and will be our player of the year. But you can't praise Tavernier and, and not look at Borna Barisic as well. So we signed Borna Barisic from Ozushek in Croatia two years ago. And in his first season, he was you know, really shy, didn't quite match up to the physical nature of the Scottish game. Um, but this last season, he's just absolutely exploded. He's currently the first-choice left-back in the Croatian national team. Um, he was mm. actually scouted by Roma 
um, at one stage this season. And I think if Borna Barisic has a good European Championships, which I believe he will do, um, he will he will go for big money in the summer. I think that there's no doubt about that. But yeah, Ross County was good on Saturday, 5-0. You asked me on the pod if that was a potential banana skin. I said I'd be surprised if it wasn't three or four and it turned out to be five. Um, and then we went to Hibs last night. And listen, Hibs are not playing particularly well, but Easter Road is a difficult place to go. And I spoke around in December about January being a really, really tough month. Five games, five difficult uh, fixtures. And we've had 13 points out of 15. So I think Rangers fans can comfortably now you know, safe in the knowledge that the league title is is coming back to Ibrox. And I can't leave the pod without a shout-out to the Rangers uh, supporters group, the Brigton Loyal today, who at lunchtime started a go fund, uh, a go crowd fund, um, to raise £14,000 for the Red Arrows to do a flyover Ibrox in May. Um, and they've raised, right. they've so far raised £20,000, so they've beaten the target already since lunchtime. And the rest of that money is going to go to charity. So uh, a massive shout out to the Rangers support for what started as a bit of a laugh has turned into a really, really a good money raising exercise for the good cause. Oh, good times. Right, we'll move into part two very quickly. So, Craig, can you fill us in with the fixtures that are happening this weekend? Yeah, so start on Friday night in Germany. Stuttgart are playing Mainz at half past seven. Torino-Fiorentina at quarter to eight, and then Lyon host Bordeaux at eight o'clock. On to Saturday, Premier League, Everton versus Newcastle, 12.30. Bologna versus Milan at two o'clock. Bayern host Hoffenheim at half past two. Uh, and then your three o'clock games, Man City host Sheffield United. West Brom versus Fulham, that's an important game at the bottom of EPL. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brentford host Wickham at three o'clock as well. Real Madrid Levante, quarter past three. Sampdoria versus Juventus at five o'clock. Uh, the aforementioned Arsenal versus Man United at five o'clock also. Big game in the Bundesliga. Leipzig host Leverkusen. Leverkusen really need to start getting their shit together. They're going to miss out on the top four as well. That's at half past five. Inter versus Benevento at 19.45. Good game there. Southampton versus Villa. And then again, I said Marseille versus Rennes at eight o'clock on Saturday night. That may be Bias Boas' last game. Into Sunday, Chelsea versus Burnley at half past 12. Feyenoord versus PSV half past one. Leicester Leeds will be a good game at two o'clock. Atalanta versus Lazio two o'clock. AZ Alkmaar versus Ajax quarter to four. West Ham Liverpool at half past four. Napoli versus Parma at five o'clock. Uh, Roma versus Verona at quarter to eight. And then the two games wrapping up Sunday night, you've got Nantes versus Monaco at eight o'clock. And then Barcelona against Atletico Bilbao, who beat them in the, the Copa del Rey. So another action-packed weekend across Europe, Adam. Yeah. No, it sounds like there's some really big games. I saw Tommy kind of get those fingers crossed for that Inter particular game. But yeah. Well, yeah. I giggled because I think that he, he willingly read 19.45 for the timing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's gross. Um, so that's it, listener. Thank you very much for listening in. Uh, but more importantly, thank you to Tommaso for your appearance on the pod. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Um, just for the benefit of the listener, where can they find you and more importantly, your podcast? Yeah, so I do the podcast with a good friend of mine, Rory. We are both English teachers in Milan. Um, I don't know if his plan was to stay here this year as well, but coronavirus made him stay here. <laughs> so we started the podcast. <laughs> Uh, my name is Tommaso. His name is Rory. You can find us on Instagram at Anglo Italian Pod. 
And unfortunately, the name is the other way around on Twitter at Italian Anglopod because some wanker got the name from us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who he is. If you guys do know who he is, give us his address. We'll go. Um, but we'll be sure to make sure the links are in our podcast as well to promote that podcast because I yeah, definitely and- recommend it to the listener. And thank you very much for having me on. It was a pleasure. No, I think we could have easily talked for a lot longer. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, uh, normally we're about an hour and 10 minutes. We're going over by quite a bit, but it doesn't matter. We'll have to bring you in again because, yeah, your Italian knowledge and between me and Craig, we loved it. Absolutely loved it. So thank yeah, you very I much. It. So, um, but yeah, thank you to the listener. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, continue to share the show where you can. And for now, thank you and goodbye.